Good evening, everyone. How are we going? Um, yeah, as I said, I've uh, been away for the last couple of weeks. We've been uh, on holidays, and uh, it's been really restful and really thankful to God for it. Um, and in the holidays, I've been going through Philippians in my quiet times because we've got Philippians coming up at church, and so I thought really good opportunity to go down deep and kind of soak myself in it. Um, and at the start of the letter, um, of that letter in Philippians, Paul says uh, that whenever he prays about the church there, he always prays with thanks for them. He's so thankful for them because of their partnership in the gospel and uh, as I was away, I missed you guys, um, yes, uh, and as I was praying for you, I just couldn't help but thank God for you all, I uh, couldn't help but thank God for what he's doing in your lives, I couldn't help but thank God, I couldn't help but thank God for the ways that you guys encourage me and point me to Jesus, so I just want to say, uh, we've been really rested, it's been great, but it is just so good to be back, um, and I'm just really pumped to be getting into this passage tonight. Um, as it's already been said, we're, we're continuing in our leadership series. It's week two. Um, John Stonebreaker, he came and preached last week. Um, and in our church, this is a really significant time of the year. We do this every year as we think about leadership. We think about what God says about leadership, what God wants for leadership, um, and what God wants for us here at Pittstown. Um, and so I just pray that we would be, well, having soft hearts and hearing what, what God has to say here. So I'm going to pray and that God would do just that. Uh, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is so good to, to be here with family. It is so good. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Would you warm our hearts again to the glorious gospel of Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would be compelled to share that with others. Please do that miraculous work in our hearts tonight. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I love summer and I'm loving that the, the weather's warming up a little bit. Um, I love it when the, the weather starts to shift and the beach days increase. Um, I know I say it a lot, um, but I do love the beach, even though I'm a redhead. And, and I, I know, I'm sure you know the feeling, you know, that first time you go to the beach and you get out of the car and your bare feet touch the hot pavement for the first time, the first time in summer. It's just like they've just touched hot coals. They are so sensitive and you kind of dart along the road. You kind of like tiptoe into the shadows and then back and then into the shadows and back. And it's pretty funny actually watching me trying to get to the beach, me tap dancing my way um, down the road. Helen finds it pretty amusing. Um, those first few times when you touch the hot pavement, it's, it's scorching. It's super, super hot. Yet if it's a summer where, and this is a good summer, where you've been to the beach a bit, your feet kind of grow a little bit tough and even callous. And so you can kind of... And I remember when I was young, you were really proud of when that happened, when you could just stroll to the beach and you're like, I don't need any thumbs. You just stroll really casually. You look at everyone around you. You're like, yes, I've got this whole thing worked out. Um, 
See, when this happens to our feet in summer, it's convenient. However, when this happens to our hearts, it's dangerous. Really dangerous. And it can and it does happen. See, callous hearts are proud hearts where over time we lose love for God and love for people. And I think that's one of the key issues Paul wants to address to the church here at Corinth. He wants to address their pride. But some there have lost connection to Christ. They've become proud and it's just resulted in just cascading problems, problem after problem. And so we read in Acts 18 when the Apostle Paul, when he went to Corinth for the first time, just picture Paul, he's about to go to Corinth. It is a big happening city. I mean, it was strategically placed economically. It was prosperous. It was multifaceted. It was like a religious buffet. There was like pick your flavor of religion. There was the Temple of Apollo. There was a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, whose worshippers practiced religious prostitution. I mean, Corinth was known for sexual immorality, for its many idols, for greed. I mean, Corinth, people at Corinth, they love status. They love to elevate themselves above others. And so in Acts 18, just picture Paul as he's facing this city and as he goes in, it would have been daunting. And we read in Acts 18, it was, he copped abuse. But as Paul went into this city, he witnessed miracles. And the miracles were people coming to Christ. People being saved. And now, I don't know about you, but for me, like, there's nothing better, to be honest. Seeing someone come to Christ. I tell myself every single year when I go to kick, I'm not going to cry, but I do. Paul witnessing people being saved. Yet over time, it appears that these people that have been saved, many people there have had their hearts hardened. There have been some people there at Corinth that their hearts have kind of grown callous over time. That they weren't being transformed by Christ, but they were, be, they were being transformed by the culture around them. And so... 1 Corinthians is, in fact, we think, probably Paul's second letter to this church. And as you read this letter, as I have, you just see this pastor's heart just, just pour out and just break and burst open as he's writing to this church. I mean, he is just dealing with, with issues of division, of sexual immorality, of spiritual gifts. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. However, the issue that we encounter in this passage is an issue of meat um, sacrificed to idols. An interesting one that we don't really uh, face today. Uh, but in Corinth, there were probably three contexts that they would have encountered meat sacrificed to idols. The first would have been in big celebrations, big parties that were held in dining halls that were kind of off temples, attached to temples of other gods. And so people would offer up food to the, the god of that temple and People would eat it. 
That'd be the first instance where they would have encountered meat sacrificed to idols. The second would have just been in private homes. And the third would have been in the markets. See, commentators believe that a large percentage of the meat in Corinth was probably offered to idols. It was just everywhere. It was just pervasive. And so, by eating this meat, it could have been perceived that someone was betraying Christ. That it could have been perceived that someone was turning their back on Christ if they eat this meat that's offered to an idol. However, some of the Corinthian Christians discovered that, hey, these idols that people are sacrificing food to, these idols are nothing, as it says in chapter 8, verse 4. So the food that people are sacrificing to them it is nothing. These idols, they have no breath in them. They're powerless compared to our God. And so they discovered that they could actually eat the meat there in, with a clear conscience, that they weren't sinning. And Paul did agree as long as they weren't bowing down in their hearts and worshipping these gods in their hearts. He agreed about the freedom that they had in Christ, that they could eat this meat. As he says in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 25, eat everything that is sold in the meat market asking no questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If one of the unbelievers invites you over and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising questions of conscience. So Paul agrees. He agrees here. However, Paul says that he saw that some people in the church were placing a higher value of themselves enjoying their newfound freedom in Christ. That was the priority rather than spiritually helping others. We see that their hearts had grown callous, that there were people here that weren't seeking to love God and love others in this particular situation. They would just rather eat the meat. They were proud and they were just looking to their own interests. And this whole issue, it starts in chapter 8, verse 1, where Paul says this. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And I think that statement there just captures the guts of this whole argument from kind of chapter 8 to 10. Love for God and love for others had just left the building with people at the church of Corinth. They weren't thinking about the Christian with the tender conscience who believed that this was actually denying Christ. They weren't thinking that by doing this, by association, they could have been actually dragging newer converts away from Christ and they could have been dragging these newer converts back into idolatry. They weren't thinking about what this meant for the outsider, that it was potentially damaging Jesus' reputation if they were just lined up so much to the culture around them that people would see that they were identical and then would reject Christ. In summary... Paul wants them to actually think about what they were doing. 
He just wants them to think about it. It's a complicated issue, yes, but he just says, I want you to think about what you're doing. Yes, you have knowledge, but knowledge by itself puffs up, love builds up. Are they loving God by their actions or are they participating in their hearts to this pagan worship? Are they loving the church by their actions or are they dragging other people back into idolatry? Are they loving the outsider or are they actually causing a bigger distance between the outsider and themselves? While they're still called to be all things to all people. Paul, he sums up this argument in the passage we read out. And I'm going to read it for us. So this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. And Paul says this, Therefore, so this is kind of a summary bit. Therefore, whether you eat or drink, Or whatever you do, do everything for God's glory. The first thing Paul says to this church, the first thing I want to focus on in depth, and it's important for us as we think about leadership, the first thing is that in whatever we do, we would be living for God's glory, that that would be the goal. Uh, Helen and I watched a movie uh, two nights ago called Gifted. It's about this brilliant girl who is gifted intellectually Uh, and there's one scene where her single-minded and rather ruthless grandmother stands with her gifted granddaughter she's about year six and before them before the grandmother and granddaughter there are these plaques and the plaques are this this handful of unsolved millennium prize math problems the hardest math problems in the world that no one has solved. And if you do, you'll get a Nobel Prize. Incredible. And the grandmother says to her gifted granddaughter, she says, with a lot of hard work and focus, your name could be up there. You could do it. You could solve it. Your face could be there. They'd paint it or digitally put it up there. The glory, your name could last the test of time. Your glory. And yet isn't there some of that in all of our hearts? That seeking of glory, that seeking of applause. And yet Paul says when it comes to this whole situation with meat offered to idols, but also in all of life, whatever it is that you are doing, your goal is that the name that is on people's lips is the name of Jesus. You want to be doing things for God's glory. For them, it would mean perhaps refraining from eating some of the meat for the weaker brother. Seeking to live a different life. And I pray that this would be the case for us, especially when it comes to leadership and especially when it comes to us about thinking about leadership here at church. See, leadership falls apart when the leader simply seeks his or her needs, really. To be liked or to be accepted or to be comfortable. See, for us, my prayer is that as leaders and as followers of Christ here at Pittown Church, our holy ambition would be the glory of God. Even when it's hard. Even when we're not liked about it. We'd be seeking God's glory. 
And yet, secondly, Paul goes on and says that one way we can be seeking God's glory is by seeking the ultimate good of others. By actually just genuinely loving others. He continues in verse 32. He says, Give no offence to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God. Just as I also try to please all people in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, so that they may be saved. See, Paul's saying, give no offence, or you could also translate that to be, provide no stumbling block for people. Now, for those who have read 1 Corinthians, you know that well, Jesus is actually described as a stumbling block earlier on. He's a stumbling block to the Jews and his foolishness to the Greeks because he's a crucified saviour. This whole message just seems, well, just crazy. We're sinful. We need his forgiveness by his death. Like Jesus is described as a stumbling block for the Jews, foolishness for the Greeks. Yet he is to be the only stumbling block. If people fall over Christ, then so be it. But we're called not to put anything else in the way of people coming to him. Paul says he tries to please people in all things. In other words, he's just trying to tear down unnecessary barriers that are putting people off Jesus. Not seeking his own glory or his own fame. Uh, the staff, we were at a conference earlier this year called Reach Australia. A conference on the Central Coast. Uh, it was really, really good. And I heard this devastating story that happened earlier this year in May. It was a story about a plane that came into Russia. And this plane came in, and as it came in, it landed, but it crashed. There was this big fire that, that blew up. And it's reported that 41 people died in that fiery aircraft. But it's also been reported that others could have been saved if those in the front rows of the plane didn't stop to get their luggage from the cabins up top. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know the situation. But it was reported that if people in the front rows, if they hadn't have stopped to get their luggage up top, more people could have gotten out. More people could have been saved. And Paul's saying, guys, the stakes are big. Don't get in the way of people being saved. Don't get in the way of people getting off the plane. Seek the good of many. If what you're eating is getting in the way of people being saved, then maybe we've got to change that. If what you're drinking is getting in the way of people being saved, then maybe we've got to think about that as well. For us, it might mean changing things. Now, it doesn't mean we'll just become a consumer church. By no means. Jesus said, follow me on the narrow path. Yet, if there are cultural barriers that are actually stopping people from even coming to hear about Jesus, then well, we've got to address that. Maybe we've got to start thinking about our own lives and how we're living. And if we ourselves are putting people off, Jesus, and let me tell you, as the preacher, I've 
been doing self-reflecting and I've been going, God, are there ways that I'm putting people off coming to Christ? And I just pray that you do the same. Lord, we, we desperately want to see people saved. Whatever it takes. There are so many people that live in the Hawkesbury, so many people that haven't heard. We want to be doing whatever it takes to be seeing them get off the plane. We don't want to be a barrier. We want to be an instrument in the hands of our great God to be bringing people to Christ. And I, can, I could just go on and on all night about the people that God has used in my life and continues to use in my life that brought me to Christ and have built me up in Christ and keep pointing me to him. Would that be us? Would we not be a barrier to others, but would we be an instrument in the hands of our gracious God, being used by him, not putting people off? See, if our lives are so much like the culture around us, then people look at us and might just go, well, Jesus just doesn't seem to make much of a difference, so I'm just going to reject him altogether. We want to be different. Whether that's at the, party we, at the parties we go to, being wise in what parties we choose to go to, and then when we go, actually how we're living there and how we're being a witness there, are we being a barrier or an instrument to be pointing people to Jesus? in that space, in that setting. I pray that you guys would do some self-reflecting and I'd be happy and would love, 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 love to chat to you guys afterwards about what that could look like for us. That'd be really, really good. See, it is heartbreaking to think how many little things can be acting as stumbling blocks, tripping people up, before they get, ever get to see or hear the glory of Jesus. And I just, I think I just had to confess this week and go, God, I'm sorry if that's been me. And maybe we just need to do some confessing tonight as well, when that's been us. <clears throat> see, I said at the start that callous hearts are dangerous to church and they're particularly dangerous when they're in leadership. Because when we have callous hearts, when we have hard hearts, we lose a love for God and we lose a love for people. We just look for our own needs rather than seeking God's glory and seeking uh, the good of others. We can't have hard hearts in leadership, but also in us as a church. We can't have callous hearts. So what's the antidote? The antidote? To soften our hearts is Jesus. It's always Jesus. To look to him. See, Jesus is the one who loved us when we were his enemies. Jesus is the one who laid down his life to tear down the barrier between us and God that stood in the way. Jesus is the one who loved us even to the grave, who bore the shame and the sin of many, as it says in Isaiah 53. Jesus is the one who beckons us in love to come to him. Jesus is the one who loves us so much that we can't even, like Paul can't even express it in Ephesians 3. His love is so high and wide and deep and long that it is even beyond understanding. That is how 
much he loves us. Jesus is the only one that can get us caring about his church and the lost. Because Jesus cares about the church and Jesus cares about the lost. And so that's why Paul says at the end of this section, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. Let me tell you, at Pitt Town, I pray that we would have leaders like this. And we do, let me just say. But more and more, that we would have leaders here that look and smell more and more and more and more like Jesus. See, these are leaders worthy of imitation. Let me just say, we've got them here. I could list them all out for you. But would that be increasingly the case? These are leaders worthy of imitation. And I pray that God would be raising up more and more leaders here among us so that we are built up as his church, that more people in the Hawkesbury would be one for Christ and this would all be for his praise, for his honour, for his glory. Amen.